Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be jumping back in with you this morning. We had a raucous week at Solid Rock this week with VBS. It was a ton of fun. And actually, with our story today, so we talked about Joseph at VBS. I actually see a decent comparison in some ways uh, to the story we're going to talk about today. So we are still in the period of the Judges. So talking about the overarching kind of era of the nation of Israel, kind of between Joshua and before the monarchy. Um, And we are going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel is kind of where we start down the path toward Israel being established more as a nation state rather than kind of a theocracy that is primarily God's people and less a political entity. So we are kind of headed in, down that path, and Samuel is actually going to be a key figure as that happens, as we'll talk about soon. Uh, but this week, we're going to be introduced to Samuel, but really, this is going to be a story about Hannah. So we're going to be in First Samuel, starting in chapter 1, going through chapter 3. Um, Hannah, as you will find out, is Samuel's mother, and... In this story, she is going to be interacting with a lot of people who really should be the exemplars of the time, the ones to be looked up to, the ones to lead people to worship of God. But she's actually going to stand in contrast to the figures who should be doing that. And she's going to stand out kind of as this paragon of godliness in the midst of her husband, the high priest, and the high priest's sons. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We will start in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel starting with verse 1 through verse 3. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Made it, made it through all the names. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. That's an easy one. And the name of the other one, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. I should have practiced those names before I started reading. should have practiced reading them out loud. Bear with me. So here we see Hannah, uh, our main character, as I told you, was one of two wives to this fella Elkanah. But she did not have any children. Her wife, I'm sorry, her kind of sister wife situation here, uh, Peninnah, henceforth known as Penny, did. So she had children. Uh, Hannah did not have any children, which a couple of things here. First, obviously, we see in scripture time and time again, like the desire to have children and the value that women were ascribed for having children was uh, significant. So we have to always have that in the back of our mind in the ancient Near East. uh, Women were kind of given value based on their ability to bear children. Now, we're going to talk about how the Bible kind of twist that up a little bit and I think kind of challenges some of the norms of not just the ancient Near East, but even the modern Middle East. But that was the way it was. So therefore, from a uh, objective standpoint, culturally, Penny would be of more value than Hannah, right? Because she had the kids and Hannah didn't. Now, something else you're probably wondering about is Elkanah has got two wives. Uh, So bigamy, so polygamy being, I guess, I don't think there's trigamy. So if you've got just two wives and bigamy, polygamy is any more than that, I guess. 
But having two wives wasn't really that big a deal at that time. And what I mean by that is it was very normal culturally. And we don't actually see a lot of very clear uh, prohibition on this in the scripture. The only really clear prohibition we see is that the kings were not to multiply wives for themselves, which also was, is kind of vague. It's not like a, even that the king should be monogamous necessarily. However, scripture definitely leaves us this trail of breadcrumbs to the New Testament. When I say scripture, I meant the Old Testament up to this time. The Old Testament, though, leads us this trail of breadcrumbs to the New Testament where we see a more explicit prohibition on polygamy. Okay, so think Abraham and the issues he had with Sarah and Hagar, okay, and all the drama that that caused. Think about Jacob and um, not wanting to marry Leah and then wanting to work for Rachel. And yes, it's a sweet story about how he loved Rachel, but we see these issues that come up. And then when Rachel eventually does give birth and gives birth to Joseph, now Joseph's the favorite son. So we see these familial issues pop up out of bigamy. And so we're not seeing like the Old Testament's like, yeah, and then he was married to two people and everything was fine. Everything was awesome. That's really not the story that scripture paints for us. So that's why I refer to it as kind of a trail of breadcrumbs to where we get to the New Testament, where it's more explicitly prohibited. Um, And clearly we know that polygamy doesn't really fit the model of Genesis and saying the uh, husband or a man and woman will leave their families and become one flesh. Um, That doesn't really fit the model of that or of the story of Adam and Eve and the original design. So again, we don't see any strict prohibitions like you shall never have more than one wife, but at the same time, scripture, the Old Testament is leading us that direction. Culturally, though, no big issue at all. Not a big issue. So that's kind of like a side part of this story. It's actually like for us, we'd be like, oh, he has two wives. That's a big part of the story culturally at that time not actually as big a deal but we're i think we're this will serve as another breadcrumb in my opinion too um so what we see again elkanah loved hannah well no we didn't read that part so in the next little part it tells us that elkanah loved hannah more than penny and would give her double portions when he sacrificed at the temple so they'd go every year which is what they were supposed to do for this kind of big sacrifice time and whenever they would uh take some of the meat from the sacrifice, which again, was what they were supposed to do. Hannah would get a double portion and everybody else would get singles. Uh, But Penny would take this opportunity to make fun of Hannah for not having kids. So she would, this was apparently a little tradition that they had. They'd go up to the temple and Penny would make fun of Hannah. And so Hannah would get this double portion, but she would be too distraught to eat. So that's what happened. And then Elkanah, walks up he's, and this is what he says he says Hannah why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad am I not more to you than 10 sons uh, a that's not very sensitive of Elkanah B he may be even kind of referring to the whole Rachel Leah thing because I think the 10 sons were born to Leah um, is kind of the the reference that uh, <laughs> Elkanah is making so he's like Hey, remember that other story where somebody was uh, somebody was barren? It worked out okay for them, right? So uh, I, I see where I see what he's going for, but at the same time, it it probably wasn't just the the kindest thing in that moment. Um, so he kind of stands up as this 
like, oh, don't, I love you so much. Am I not better than having sons? And she's probably like, I appreciate that you love me, but it's not, it's not quite the same. So she's still upset about it. She's distraught. She would like to have children and she's so far not been able to. But what Hannah does in this moment is she kind of shows where her faith is. She shows what her value is in. So starting in verse 10, it says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Okay, so she calls out to the Lord. Um, she prays that she might have a son and she kind of makes a vow to the Lord. If I have a son, I'm going to dedicate him to your service. And uh, that last bit of verse 11, no razor shall touch his head, is probably alluding to a Nazarite vow. Okay, so if you remember from the Samson story from a couple of weeks ago, that means no haircuts, no grapes, and no dead bodies. Not any more, even less dead bodies than a normal person. As if there's, again, people that are encouraged to be around dead bodies. There's not, but that was what she was kind of saying. I'm going to dedicate him to your service. And I'm taking kind of on his behalf, he'll take this Nazarite vow. So she also, uh, in verse 11 at the very beginning, she calls him, uh, ESV translates it, O Lord of hosts. Uh, Other ones would say Lord Almighty. Uh, This is actually the first time in the Old Testament that this title is ascribed to God. So go Hannah, look at her go. She's awesome. She's faithful. She loves the Lord. She's using also, no, no, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. I don't want to spoil it. But she is, I think what that shows us is A, her devotion to the Lord. And like she has a a true piety, a true devoutness that we are going to see kind of contrasted to those around her. So I mentioned Eli um, as someone who is observing her mouth, which is a funny way to look uh, or a funny way to read that. But um the point being that he sees her lips moving, but no words are coming out. So Eli was the uh, priest there at Shiloh. So this is where they are is in Shiloh. And he was the priest there. So he sees her mouth moving and not talking. And he's like, oh, somebody's drunk again. Goes there and says, put down the bottle effectively. Uh, but Hannah tells him, I'm just praying out of my distress. This is actually, um, if you've ever wondered, like, Oh, is it okay to like pray silently? This is actually probably one of the most uh, relevant passages to the idea of like, yeah, it's totally fine to pray silently in your heart. Um, Again, Hannah is serving here as a good example. And we see here that she is praying silently in her heart. So that's one of the reasons we're like, yeah, if you want to pray silently, the Lord hears that. We don't have to pray out loud for the Lord to hear us. So uh, Eli, again, uh, is, again, he kind of serves as a contrast. He's contrasting to Hannah's personal call to Yahweh. So remember, Lord, Lord of hosts, that's going to be that covenant name. Yahweh is the, the part that's Lord. Um, whereas Eli is uh, tells her at the end, she kind of tells him what's going on. And he's like, well, I hope the God of Israel will grant your prayer. And that's kind of seen as a more informal title for God or a less personal title. So it's like if I said, oh, I pray if the that the Jesus of the Christians would do this for you. 
But if I was as a pastor to say that, it's like, oh, was he not your Jesus too? That's kind of how it comes across a little bit with Eli. Uh, that he's like saying, I hope the God of Israel. It's like, is it is he not your God too? Aren't you a priest? So again, there's this. That's kind of a, a slight contrast there to uh, Eli. But the good news is, the Lord did answer Hannah's prayer, and she had a son, and she named him Samuel. So Samuel is born, and so what they agree to, uh, by they, I mean uh, her and her husband, basically uh, after he's weaned uh, during their yearly trip up to Shiloh uh, to do their sacrifices, they will um, commit him to the temple. So he's going to be basically in the priesthood of Eli, under the watch of Eli, uh, serving from a very young age. Um, So they would have taken longer to uh, wean probably than we do nowadays, but still, still very young, definitely a toddler or younger. And so that is, she keeps her vow that she made to the Lord that he would be committed to the Lord's service. So that's where he went. He went to serve with Eli and his sons. And then we see this in chapter two, we see this wonderful prayer from Hannah and it goes like this. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, the feeble, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So this is the prayer of Hannah uh, that is often looked upon um, with just a lot of... um, I guess you'd say just a lot of favor. Like people read this prayer and are like, wow, that's some prayer. Um, and I've, I've heard sometimes people are like, oh, all, all women should memorize the prayer of Hannah. I'd say all people should memorize the prayer of Hannah. That's not a woman's only prayer. Um, that's a prayer that I honestly think if you like said, hey, this is a Psalm, you know, 79 or something like that. And you read this, people believe it, it sounds so much like a Psalm. That's uh, clear that the Lord was with Hannah, and that this is a prayer of that is a result of her faithfulness and her close relationship with the Lord. Um, and so, again, we see this contrast between Eli and Hannah, this very pious woman, versus this kind of this priest who's yeah, whatever. And we're only going to see this contrast between Hannah and the priest grow as we go on. So, as we go into chapter two we see some about Eli's sons, okay? So they were also serving as priests there. They were part of the priestly family. And so this is what Eli's sons were doing. 
So they were taking portions of the sacrifices that weren't theirs to have. They were the biggest thing that they were doing was they were taking the uh, the fat from the offerings, which that was the portion that was, again, you would consider it the best part of the meat. Now, I know that a lot of times we like to cut off excess fat and things like that, but that's where the flavor is. We all know it. It's no secret. And so the idea of burning off the fat as an aroma to the Lord is saying, I'm giving the best of what I have to the Lord. And then I'm taking what's left as his provision for me. That's kind of the idea. So to take the fat is to say, I'm going to take the best for myself and the Lord can have, I don't care. So it shows a lack of piety, a lack of respect to the Lord. And definitely for a priest shows a lack of obedience. And so they were doing that. And then if, when people kind of were like, hey, we're not really supposed to do that that way, they would threaten them physically if they didn't break the law on the sacrifices. So not only are they doing wrongly, but they are encouraging others to do wrongly. And then third, they were also um, sleeping with women that were outside the temple. So those may have been, uh, they may have been cult prostitutes. They may have been um, people that were supposed to be serving at the temple. Not 100% sure, but we do know that they weren't supposed to be doing that. So that was what um, Eli's sons, the people of the priesthood, were up to. Okay, and again, Hannah over here, we've seen so much from her. So Hannah and her husband keep coming to worship each year. Uh, Samuel is serving faithfully. We see actually two at, uh, in, let's see, is in chapter, yeah, in chapter two, um, we see that the Lord also provides Hannah three sons, two daughters. So she has more children, which is very exciting. Um, and so he really was with her and answered her prayers. And even though she had committed the one son she had, and maybe she didn't know if she'd be able to have another one committed him to the Lord, the Lord was faithful to her. And then every year she'd bring him like a new little linen ephod so he could do his priestly duties and, uh, you know, one that fit him, and which I think is very precious that she'd make him a new, new priestly garment every year. That's very precious. Um, but what is not so precious is the Lord is bringing judgment on the house of Eli. So he sends a prophet kind of, it's kind of a nondescript. It says there came a man of God to Eli. So we don't really get much description on who this person is, but he basically tells him you and your family, y'all are out of the priesthood. Your family will no longer serve and both of your sons are going to die and they're going to die on the same day. So a pretty bummer prophecy for Eli and the sons, though, um, given the nature of what Eli had allowed to happen under his watch and the sins of his sons. I think we can understand why they are out on the priesthood. And God promises Eli that he's going to raise up a faithful priest. And then that takes us into chapter three, where the Lord is going to call Samuel. So starting in verse one of chapter three, it says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down and the Lord called again, Samuel and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son lie down again. 
Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. So Samuel keeps receiving this call. He keeps getting up like a child in the night and saying, here I am. You called me. I need water. I need to go to the bathroom. And uh, it takes four times before old Eli thinks maybe God's speaking to somebody in his temple. And maybe is, is this a dig at Eli's faithlessness and how like disconnected he is? Maybe so, that it takes him that long to figure, oh, maybe the Lord's talking to Samuel. Samuel's response that he gives not to... Uh, Eli, or not to the Lord, but to Eli, because Eli gave him some other instructions. It's kind of reminiscent of uh, the call that we see from Abraham um, whenever God's about to call him to sacrifice Isaac. And then when he stops him from sacrificing Isaac, that's how he responds. Here I am. Jacob, when he sees the angel of the Lord in a dream, says, here I am. Moses, when he's at the burning bush, here I am. Thanks, Dr. Bergen of the commentary of First and Second Samuel for pointing that out very helpful and helps us understand oh okay this is a this is a guy that's probably on a good trajectory um so verse 7 says Samuel did not yet know the lord um and i think what's probably meant for us to understand by that i mean he's serving in the temple of the lord he knows who god is right it's probably meant for us to understand he did not know the lord's voice things had been quiet said there weren't very many like the lord wasn't really speaking to the priests so it's probably meant for us to understand when it says he did not yet know the Lord. He didn't know how to hear his voice or what his voice was like. But when Samuel's finally ready, God speaks to him. This is what he says, starting in verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So God tells him the bad news that he had for Eli and sons. Um, basically, God is saying this judgment is final. They are not going to, uh, they're, basically, they're not going to be um, restored to this place. There's nothing at this point they can do to be restored to their to their place uh, in the priesthood because they have blasphemed who God is. So Eli asks him, uh, hey, what'd God say? And Samuel feels a little uncomfortable, but he's like, ah, just tell me everything. Don't hide anything from me. He tells him, Eli already kind of knew this. Um, and then Samuel, we see, he grows up to become a man of God. And it says that he was established as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. Okay. So Samuel grows into uh, the priest of the Lord that Eli and his sons were supposed to be. And this is not going to be the last we see of Samuel. So that's the story of the call of Samuel. But ultimately, this story is about Hannah. This is kind of the beginning of the story about Samuel, but this story is about Hannah. Um, so as we seek to apply this, we see that Hannah is the example in contrast to 
the priests, okay? Which is not what you'd expect, right? Again, ancient Near East culture, even to an extent, current Middle East culture, and I say to an extent, like to a large extent, um, women are not, were not, and in some places are not, uh, valued, and they are seen as second class. What we have to know about God's design and the way that women are treated in scripture is that the Bible gives great honor to women, not just in their culture, but also just in general. And the the Bible exalts women of faith and unexpected people of faith. We see here that what God's calling us to is not some, uh, well, the professionals have it. They're the ones to look up to. They're the ones who um, are obedient. But rather, the Bible points out that normal people often display the most godliness. And Hannah being a great example, even as she's being teased and made fun of for something that is very hard for her to go through with her barrenness. She's getting teased for it. She relies on the Lord. She trusts in the Lord. She devotes herself to the Lord. And that is in contrast to the priests who are all about themselves. So we see here that Hannah stands up as this person who is meant to be uh, an example of what it means to follow God rather than the quote unquote professionals with the priesthood, right? So that's, that call is for, for all of us to put not value, not in any sort of uh, position uh, to think that, oh, well, you know, I guess the way that the pastors or whoever else is doing it, that, they're the examples. I'm not an example. We have to realize that any, any person who seeks to follow the Lord is an example and is meant to be an example because there are places that a pastors stumble all the time, but B there are places where pastors don't get to be the example, but that people who are not in pastoral ministry do think about your workplace, your home, things like that. So it's an opportunity for all of us. God's calling all of us to be an example of what it means to be faithful. And we see that in Hannah, even in the difficulty that she's in, she serves as an example, not just to the people around her, but to us millennia later. And then two, and finally, before we finish up, God is working in times of tribulation. Hannah was going through about as difficult thing as you could be going through for a woman in the ancient Near East to be barren seen as worthless, being made fun of by your sister wife about it. That's about that's about as bad as it gets. She had the love of her husband, which was good. But at the same time, she was going through great tribulation. But we see that through that tribulation, God was working not just to make that tribulation end. Right? Sometimes that's God's working until it ends. And then that was the work that he was trying to accomplish. But Hannah was really forged as a woman of God, through this tribulation that she was going through, this vow that she made for Samuel that put him into the temple as a priest of the Lord came out of this time of tribulation. And of course, we're going to see Samuel accomplish a great many things on behalf of the Lord. God was in it. We were reminded of that at VBS this week, talking about the story of Joseph, um, one of the most uh, trials that a person has gone through. You think, Job, I think Joseph, probably right after that, um, of just the difficulties he went through, but how God used those things for good. And I also just love the perspective of it was good for the people that were there 
at that time. It was good for Hannah. It was good for uh, the nation of Israel for this to be happening with Samuel. But it's also good for us, even again, thousands of years later, to be reminded that a story of a person going through tribulation reminds us that the same God is working in the midst of our struggles, of our difficulties. So we get the chance to be reminded that these great struggles that heroes of the faith went through, we see how God worked. And even though it's difficult for us to also walk through our own tribulations, we can be reminded God was working then and he's working now. Whatever it is, the difficulty, whatever is your thing that causes you to just want to cry out to the Lord, to remember that he is working through that and that there is pain and there is difficulty and there is probably hopelessness in the midst of that. But the Bible reminds us constantly, time and time again, the Lord is working in tribulation. It may not be that he's working toward what we would choose for him to work toward. It may be that he's working toward something way better. In fact, it's certain that he's working toward something way better, even if from our perspective, it doesn't look that way. So I hope that Hannah can be an encouragement to you wherever you are in your life right now, that you can be confident that even in the midst of the struggle, God is working towards something that is going to result in your good, my good, and again, God's idea of our good, not our idea of our good, right? He's going to work for our good and his glory. Thank you.